After canceling the March and April oral arguments, the court set a rare May argument session while also pushing a dozen cases into next term. Today is the day when we review the Supreme Court term just passed and preview the next one, finishing up with the annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture, which this year will be given by Judge Don Willett of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. After that, we've had to forego our traditional rooftop reception, but you're welcome to treat yourself from your own liquor cabinet. We hold this event on September 17th because on this day, 233 years ago, the framers completed the Constitution in Philadelphia and sent it to the states for ratification. Liberty through limited government animated the Declaration of Independence while the Constitution set out to make a more perfect union that would better secure and protect liberty. Later, we saw what's called the completion of the Constitution in the second founding of the post-Civil War amendments, though that was largely thwarted by a Supreme Court unwilling to defend individual rights against state violation. Then, after a rebirth of economic liberty in the Lochner era, we had a constitutional reworking without amendment during the New Deal. The critique of that inversion has animated our center, and you can read about that dynamic in my new book, uh, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court, which will officially be released on Tuesday, but is now available for pre-order on Amazon and elsewhere. To give an overview of the conference, let me introduce the man largely responsible for putting it together, Trevor Burris. Trevor is a research fellow in the Levy Center and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's also the editor of two books, A Conspiracy Against Obamacare and Deep Commitments, The Past, Present, and Future of Religious Liberty. And he co-hosts Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast that covers libertarian theory, history, and philosophy. Trevor first came to Cato as an intern right after graduating from the University of Denver Sturm College of Law a decade ago, and he's stuck around ever since. I'll now turn the program over to him, but we'll return at the end of the day to introduce Judge Willett. Welcome. Thank you very much, Ilya, and welcome to the most normal Constitution Day ever. Uh, I said I am Trevor Burris, Editor-in-Chief, honored to be Editor-in-Chief of the Supreme Court Review. Uh, this year, I had to get a printer and sit here at my kitchen table and furiously edit these articles, uh, which we publish very quickly, as our authors know. Uh, some of our authors were under even a, a more a higher time pressure than they had been in the past when the Supreme Court continued its uh, decisions until July 9th. So I thank our authors for producing uh, work so quickly. Now, although law professors can be long-winded, apparently lockdown contributes to it also. So although I don't yet have the book in hand, it is sitting in boxes, shipping boxes at Cato HQ at 380 pages. While it's not our longest issue ever, it is the highest in terms of average length per article. The book is live on our website today. Uh, you can download the articles and read them as you watch the panels. But for a few opening remarks about the Constitution itself in this extraordinary time, every year it seems that we must say today the Constitution is more important than ever. This year, however, that seems particularly true. Our nation has not seen an upheaval like this in our lifetimes. Uh, into, a, into our already politically schismatic tinderbox, we've added wildfires and riots and, of course, a deadly virus. On the 2016 election day, I was in Athens and it was glorious. I vowed then to be out of the country for every presidential election. Now I can hardly go anywhere legally, but I'm thinking on election day of finding a cabin in my home state of Colorado with provisions and plenty of ammo. <clears throat> Why are we here aside from the exogenous factors of fires and viruses? Never have I been more convinced that constitutional corruption is one of the most important inputs into our cataclysmic political culture. While our Bill of Rights is 
largely stronger than ever. The essential aspects of constitutional structure, those guardrails that were debated for four months in Philadelphia in 1787, remember where they did not really discuss a Bill of Rights except for in the last week to vote it down, those guardrails have never been more shaky. Therefore, we have turned into a system where the presidency is almost all that matters, and so many people in each party view the election as an existential threat. Of all the things that would most surprise the framers, and I don't think Donald Trump would be one of them because he is exactly a type of person that they feared could become president, but I think it would be that Congress gave away and continues to give away its power. Congress has created an Article I because the framers think that it was first among equals in our branches of government. Congress would jealously guard its power, they believed, and not willingly give the executive too much authority. That, of course, did not happen. Public choice scholars and political theorists can explain why, but it, is hardly, it was hardly foreseen. Now Congress has basically been a do-nothing body for more than a decade, and maybe two decades. The presidency has become the focal point of policymaking and policy change in the government. Who the president is matters now more than ever. Too many times when presidents act with sweeping unilateral authority, legal scholars go and look at the law and say, wow, Congress gave the president tons of discretion. I know I've done that many times during especially the last two presidencies. President Trump imposed steel tariffs by claiming that they're in the interests of national security. While the Constitution explicitly gives Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 delegated a significant amount of that power to the president by allowing him to unilaterally regulate foreign commerce in the interests of national security. The Obama administration purported to redefine the concept of gender when it came to public school bathrooms by publishing a Dear Colleague letter instructing schools to let students use the bathroom of their gender identity. Now, as a strong supporter of transgender rights, I was nevertheless shocked the administration would so casually force such a broad social change. Transgender rights and issues of bathrooms are the type of issue that should be debated in Congress, not imposed by the president. And of course, when the president does such a thing, as President Trump did, you can get administrative whiplash, to use a phrase from an article on Little Sisters of the Poor by Robin Fretwell Wilson and Tanner Bean. Administrative whiplash is when the president is making all the policy and you go back and forth as they rescind and pass regulations with each election. So Congress doesn't work and we're left with a president who has powers that even King George III didn't have. Under current law, an opposing president a president can switch significant environmental regulations, impose national emergencies to solve pet projects. That's, that's a new one that's come around. Radically restructure immigration, significantly alter regulations on businesses, and even fight undeclared wars, all without asking Congress to do anything. And I've come to the conclusion, as more so this year than ever, this is no way to run a constitutional republic. The Cato Supreme Court Review and this event and the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies exist to remind people of the fundamental principles of constitutional governance. Although it's become cliche, cliche, it's more important now than ever. I'd like to thank those who gave invaluable help with putting together the review. First, the authors, as I said, uh, who did an excellent job. Thank you for putting up with my edits and protestations, and I think all of the articles came out great. Ilya Shapiro, of course, for being an excellent director of the department and a great articles editor himself, and of course, the legendary Roger Pilon, who started our department and gave it its mission and vision. He is also a great articles editor. Robert Levy, uh, chairman of the Cato Institute, uh, and the namesake of our department. He also likes to get his hands dirty with editing articles. Clark Neely, Jay Schweikert, Walter Olson, and Will Yateman were also excellent articles editors. Legal associates Michael Collins, Dennis Garcia, James Knight, Christian Townsend, and Mallory Reeder provided valuable editing, site checking, and proofreading. And of course, legal interns Brandon Bayer, Wen Tao Zai, and Joao Barbarossa did, did similar proofreading and ed editing. And finally, Sam Spiegelman, who is 
indispensable in this process. Uh, hard for me to say how much he's done uh, with editing the articles, uh, and it would be hard to do this without him. In the two years I've been doing this, uh, he's been indispensable. Thank you very much for attending our event. Uh, we can move into the first panel uh, as we get into set this up. Bear with us here as we uh, deal with some of the logistics of this. Um, first panel, big a little bit early here, but I will I will invent. This is the, our executive branch and constitutional structure panel, which I think is important for the reasons I previously stated in my introduction. We will discuss the relationship of president to Congress. We will discuss the relationship of president to agency heads. Uh, for so-called fourth branch of government, and we will discuss the relationship of president and immigration law. Our first, I will introduce our panelists first. Uh, there, if you go to the Constitution Day page, our, their full bios are on the contributors link at the bottom. So I will give brief introductions for them. First, on the subpoena cases, we'll have Jonathan H. Adler, the inaugural Johann Verheij Memorial Professor of Law and Director of the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Next, we'll have Elon Werman. He's an associate professor at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University, where he teaches administrative law and constitutional law. He will be discussing the Sela Law case. And finally, we'll have Peter Margulies, a professor of law at Roger Williams University School of Law in Bristol, Rhode Island, where he teaches immigration law, national security law, and professional responsibility. He will be discussing the DACA cases. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Jonathan Adler to discuss the subpoena cases. John? Great, well, it's, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, too bad we can't be there in person. Uh, I will be sure to send Ilya a bill for my bar tab uh, later this evening. Um, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here in particular to talk about the financial records cases. Uh, these are uh, fascinating cases, cases that I think, and as I suggest in my paper, could only have been brought to us uh, by the, the combination of having um, a, a Trump administration uh, and with the particular uh, connections and uh, uh, entanglements that President Trump has combined with the hyperpartisan environment that we uh, find ourselves in uh, today. Uh, and these cases, as a general matter, concerned whether the president uh, and by extension his family and his businesses were immune from demands for their financial records from third parties. Uh, a lot of people talk about these cases as being about tax returns. They're really about financial records more broadly, uh, all sorts of financial records of Donald Trump in his personal capacity, uh, his direct relatives, and a range of Trump-related businesses were involved in these cases. As I've already noted, I think to understand what was going on in these cases, why the Supreme Court was dragged into these cases, it is important to recognize the context. Um, with Donald Trump, we have a president that has a, a range and degree of financial entanglements that we have not seen in the modern era. Uh, his involvement in, in the commercial real estate industry in New York, uh, in the international hotel and conference industry, uh, led to a degree of connections, business relationships, and the like, not only with um, entities here in the United States, but also with foreign entities, foreign governments, and foreign individuals, raising a wide range of concerns out about potential conflicts of interest. Uh, combined with that, uh, I think it is fair to say that uh, Pre President Trump has been subject to a range of allegations concerning financial and other improprieties that, again, uh, really have no precedent in the modern era. Uh, claims of 
uh, uh, altering or disguising or misrepresenting uh, financial records uh, for various purposes, claims also of various other personal improprieties and a range of lawsuits against him in his personal capacity. Uh, another factor is uh, less disclosure. Uh, I know Senator Johnson said this week that no president has been as transparent as uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I think anyone who actually looks uh, recognizes that that is an absurd claim. Uh, the first president uh, in 50 years not to disclose his tax returns uh, and a White House that in general has been more resistant to oversight and disclosure uh, than any recent predecessors in the modern era. As I also noticed, we have a hyper-partisan environment. Uh, it seems that everything is about uh, Donald Trump all the time. Uh, and I think it is fair to note that there has been a degree of partisanship in Congress and among state attorneys general, trends that certainly predated Trump coming into office, but that have continued, uh, which led to the sorts of document demands that ultimately led to these court cases uh, and these cases reaching uh, the Supreme Court. I think most people are aware of, of the general details of these cases. I don't think I have to give a, a ton of background. Uh, one case, Trump versus Vance, involved a criminal subpoena uh, filed by uh, the New York District Attorney, uh, a grand jury subpoena, so seeking documents that would be uh, uh, confidentially held and, and examined by the grand jury in its consideration of potential uh, uh, indictments of possibly the, uh, Donald Trump, but certainly uh, uh, possibly uh, family members, uh, business entities that he is involved in, uh, a wide range of, of, of possible investigations that are clearly within the jurisdiction of uh, the New York uh, grand jury. Uh, the second case uh, is really a, a combination of cases, uh, all involving various congressional subpoenas for financial records. Uh, one that came out of the DC circuit, that is the Mazars case, uh, for Trump versus Mazars, uh, but in addition, uh, some congressional subpoenas that were considered by the Second Circuit uh, in the Deutsche Bank case. One thing that's also distinct about both sets of cases is that these were not subpoenas uh, filed directly against the president himself. These were not subpoenas filed to uh, Donald Trump as president, Donald Trump as, um, uh, as a private citizen. These were all subpoenas directed against third parties that have these uh, documents. So subpoenas were filed against uh, Trump's accountants, uh, the Mazar, uh, Mazars, and also filed against uh, banks that have various financial records. And at least in um, uh, the congressional cases, I think that's potentially quite significant. Uh, of the, the two decisions, I should say both decisions uh, came out the last day of the term. Um, uh, so. Uh, uh, in, well into July, uh, both written by the Chief Justice, uh, both in their uh, broad sweep were seven to two in the sense that in both cases, uh, broad majorities of the court rejected the extremely broad claims of immunity that had been asserted on behalf of Donald Trump. Uh, there was some disagreement on the particulars in the Vance case, uh, but both cases, I think, were fairly broad and profound rejections of the claims of immunity uh, that Trump had put forward. Of the two cases, I think the Vance case is more straightforward uh, in, in that uh, uh, here you had a grand jury seeking to obtain documents for the purposes of investigating of potential crimes uh, under state law. Um, there, there is some question about whether 
uh, the grand jury could issue an indictment against Donald Trump himself. Uh, but I, I think it was pretty well established going in uh, that the grand jury can investigate businesses related to the president, can investigate um, individuals that are in business relationships with the president. Uh, and it seems, I think, fairly straightforward that they therefore can also investigate uh, the president. And uh, from the very first sentence of the chief justice's opinion in this case, it was very clear how the court was going to come out. Um, the court, uh, Chief Justice Roberts noted at the outset that in our judicial system, the public has a right to every man's evidence since the earliest days of our republic, every man has included the president of the United States. Uh, for you Hamilton fans out there, uh, lots of references to uh, founding era investigations, including uh, those related to the Burr trial. Uh, but also the court noted that, that as recently as the Clinton administration, the Supreme Court had rejected broad claims of immunity by a sitting president against uh, court proceedings that were based on uh, actions that, that the president took in, in his private capacity prior to taking office. In Clinton versus Jones, the question was immunity for civil suit in federal court. Uh, the Trump uh, attorneys tried to argue that we should treat this differently, perhaps because it's criminal, perhaps because these are state court proceedings, uh, but the court rejected that. The, there was no reason the court could see why any sort of blanket immunity could be offered. While it is, it is certainly conceivable or possible that state court proceedings could interfere with the president's ability to perform his duties, uh, that would need to be shown. Uh, no blanket claim of immunity uh, could be uh, could be could be uh, 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 could be uh, recognized. Further, the court said that there was no basis for any heightened standard for issuance of a criminal subpoena for the president's documents. Um, five justices, the, 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 four, the four liberal justices and Justice Roberts joined his opinion. Uh, justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch joined, um, uh, concurred in the judgment, uh, but uh, held separately that they thought a slightly uh, more demanding standard uh, was appropriate. But I think it's important that they um, joined the judgment of the, of the court affirming of the Second Circuit's rejection of any immunity claims. Um, the Chief Justice and uh, uh, the uh, Gorsuch, and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh opinion recognized that like any other litigant um, seeking to uh, uh, dispute a subpoena, uh, Trump would retain the ability to raise specific arguments about specific document requests on remand, um, but that any claims of immunity uh, could uh, not be, uh, would not be recognized. Um, now, in terms of the congressional cases, I think these are the more interesting cases. I want to spend the balance of my time uh, talking about um, uh, these other cases. Uh, I think these are the cases that, that going forward, I think are the most uh, interesting. And uh, I think that, that, this, that these cases really um, are, are the most significant in terms of what they tell us about the balance of, of power between Congress and the executive branch. Here, like in the Vance case, um, Congress had sought documents from third parties, uh, from Mazars, uh, uh, as, because Mazars, as Trump's accountant, has the various financial records. This is important, as, as Chief Justice Roberts noted in his opinion for the court, because usually when Congress wants documents from the president, Congress seeks those documents directly from the White House or directly from the president. And then usually this sets off a degree of negotiation. Uh, uh, the hurly-burly of the political process, uh, to use 
the phrase that the Chief Justice invoked, that there is um, some back and forth and ultimately in the usual instance, some degree of accommodation. Uh, but that process couldn't occur here because Congress did not seek documents from the president directly. Instead, Congress sought documents uh, from the third party, putting Trump in the position of having to uh, file uh, a motion to quash those subpoenas. Um, and that's what set off the legal proceedings here. The other thing that I think uh, is, is particularly important to remember about uh, the congressional cases about Mazars is that Congress made no claim that these documents were pursuant to or part of any sort of impeachment inquiry. That claim of authority by Congress was off the table. Rather, Congress asserted from the beginning and throughout this litigation that it was demanding these documents as a pursuant to its authority to engage in legislative oversight. And I think uh, that made this case more difficult than perhaps it, it needed to be. And certainly I think that figured into its ultimate resolution uh, by the court. Congress's assertion of authority uh, in this case was extremely broad. Um, uh, Congress essentially claimed that anything plausibly related to its enumerated powers uh, could be the subject of legislative oversight. And in fact, in the course of the litigation and in oral argument, uh, the attorney for, for uh, the House of Representatives was repeatedly asked to identify information or documents that would be beyond Congress's ability to subpoena. And he came up empty. At one point he suggested, well, maybe the president's medical records uh, might, be, might be off limits, but then realized that because of the 25th Amendment, because Congress has the authority to operationalize the 25th Amendment, which relates to presidential incapacity, well, then certainly medical records might be relevant there. Further, Congress had asserted the authority to use its oversight power to demand documents for the purposes of conducting a case study of potential abuse or potential evasion of federal law, and that the president could just randomly be identified as a potential case study uh, for such investigation. Uh, and that uh, I think illustrates or, or, or evinces Congress's belief that any limits on its oversight authority would be political uh, and would not be constitutional. I think it was clear at oral argument that when Congress could not identify limits uh, on its authority, uh, that this was going to be a problem. And so while the court in, in Chief Justice Roberts's opinion rejected the president's claims of immunity, uh, seven to two, uh, and rejected any argument that any sort of heightened need needed to be demonstrated apart from any claims of executive privilege. The court also rejected uh, the assertions by Congress, rejected the tests put forward by the lower courts that essentially Congress could demand any such information that it wanted pursuant to its legislative oversight powers. Um, the court noted that that Congress's investigatory power is derivative of its, of its legislative powers. And I think uh, it's important to recognize, and certainly at the Cato Institute, it is generally recognized that Congress's powers are limited. Uh, and that if Congress's legislative powers are limited, uh, that its investigatory powers are limited as well. Now, one possible argument would be, well, the limited nature of Congress's enumerated powers is a sufficient limit on its investigatory powers. The court did not accept that, and I think it's easy to see why the court did not and could not accept that. First, 
uh, this case study rationale that Congress put forward uh, would allow uh, Congress to select anyone for pretty much any sort of reason uh, to investigate. But more importantly, because Congress has the power to propose amendments to the Constitution, that means uh, if Congress's ability to investigate is as broad as Congress's ability to initiate or propose legislation, and that includes proposing amendments, then that investigatory power would in fact be in it, would in fact be infinite, would not be subject uh, to any limits, and that would uh, be a problem. So the court in rejecting uh, any sort of claim of, of presidential immunity uh, also, as I noted, re rebuked Congress's claim that it essentially could investigate anything it wanted, and instead uh, tried to identify four factors uh, that lower courts should consider when evaluating uh, subpoenas of this sort. And I think what the Chief Justice was trying to do was to identify the sorts of factors that usually come into play when Congress is in the position of negotiating with the executive branch for documents. Uh, and the Chief Justice said, these are the sorts of criteria that courts would have to consider in, in the future. And these criteria are first, um, uh, the, the court has to consider whether or not there's an actual legislative purpose that requires papers from the president, as opposed to say from other individuals, as opposed to individual uh, uh, agencies. It's important to note here that various federal agencies, various federal departments are creations of Congress. Congress created them, funds them, and so on. The presidency, on the other hand, is not created by Congress. It is a constitutionally created office, so Congress doesn't necessarily have the same degree of oversight. Also implicit in this factor is the court's rejection of Congress's claim that because the documents were uh, sought from third parties, there could be no uh, intrusion on the president. There could be no separation of powers concerns. Uh, the court uh, did not accept that argument. Uh, we all recognize that Congress wants these documents because Donald Trump is the president, uh, and that raises separation of powers concerns, even if the actual physical document request is being put to a third party. Second factor courts have to consider is whether the request is broader than necessary. You know, do, does Congress really need uh, records about uh, Baron Trump's credit card swipes or his checking account? Uh, does Congress really need information going back as far as Congress asked and so on? That, that Congress would have to, or a court should ask whether Congress is sweeping too broadly. Uh, third, uh, whether Congress offered evidence of a valid legislative purpose. It's not simply enough for Congress to just say, we want or need this information. Um, and fourth, whether the request would in fact impose undue or unreasonable burdens. I think this factor is relatively easy to meet in this case. Mazars presumably has these documents. It should not be that difficult for them to produce them. Um, but uh, it's certainly plausible that uh, a president um, would want to review those documents to see if there are any specific documents that uh, any kind of claim of privilege could be uh, invoked for. Uh, and that was something else the courts would have to consider. Now, as I noted before, this is all about um, uh, 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 Congress's legislative powers. This is not a case about what documents or information Congress could uh, demand pursuant to its impeachment powers. And I think that's important um, because the court is basically saying, look, if you're investigating the president for a legislative purpose, we do want to know that you're actually investigating this for a legislative purpose. Um, 
Uh, if Congress were investigating this for an impeachment purpose, that presumably would raise a, a different set of considerations. And presumably, Congress's ability to investigate the president as the president uh, would be uh, much would be much broader. Uh, why didn't Congress uh, invoke its impeachment power? Well, I think it's because Congress recognizes that putting the impeachment putting impeachment on the table, invoking the I word, produces a degree of, of political pushback that legislative uh, oversight does not. And I would argue that that's the way the system is supposed to work. Uh, I think that uh, Gene Healy at Cato's work suggesting that, it, that Congress should be more willing to put impeachment on the table than it traditionally does uh, is, is certainly uh, a valid argument, certainly an argument I accept. But if Congress wants to investigate the president because he is the president, Congress should be willing to acknowledge that it is using its broader power, it is using the impeachment power. And then if Congress isn't willing to do that, uh, it is reasonable for courts uh, to make Congress uh, show that it is in fact uh, 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 pursuing a legitimate legislative purpose. In these particular cases on remand, um, it is unclear whether or not these particular uh, subpoenas will satisfy that. I think the House Intelligence Committee subpoena of, is uh, the most closely connected uh, to the House's legislative authority, uh, whereas the Oversight Committee's uh, uh, subpoena, I think, is, is a little more speculative, uh, but that's something that courts will have to consider on remand. I'm probably pretty much out of time, uh, so I will stop there, and I look forward to our conversation and any questions that folks may have. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, we can go right into Elon uh, discussing SALA law or SILA law. I'm not sure which one it is yet. Elon? Thanks so much. Well, I say SILA law, so that's uh, what I'm going to go with uh, today. Um, well, thanks everyone uh, for having me. As I said, the case I'm going to be talking about is SILA law, the CFPB, uh, the case in which the Supreme Court held that four cause removal protections are unconstitutional for a single director agency, in that case, the Consumer uh, Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, I'll start by briefly discussing how we got here. Why was this even an issue? So we'll talk about the precedents uh, leading up uh, to the case, and then I'll note some important uh, implications and unanswered questions, namely, namely, what's left of the theory of quasi-legislative power? Uh, from Humphrey's executor, as I'll discuss, and then uh, some of the questions over the meaning of the executive power, this grant to the president in Article I, in Article II, Section 1. So, so how did we get here? Let me start with that. Well, it all goes back uh, to the decision of 1789, or the maybe decision of 1789, in which Congress debated whether the principal officers of the first three departments should be removable at the pleasure of the president or rather by and with advice and consent of the Senate, the same way they're appointed. Remember, there's no removal clause in the Constitution, which seems to be silent on the question. Well, Congress decided that the officers were to be removable at the pleasure of the president, but it's a bit unclear whether a majority thought this was constitutionally mandated by the executive vesting clause or maybe the take care clause, or whether some thought, it, some thought uh, that it was up to Congress's discretion whether to uh, assign the removal power to the president or whether Congress could uh, retain a role for itself or the Senate could retain a, a role for itself. So that was the maybe decision of 1789. Well, fast forward to a case called Myers v. United States in 1926, a former president Taft, then Chief Justice of the United States, 
held in this case uh, that all officers appointed by and with the advice and consent of the Senate had to be removable by the president. The Senate, in other words, could not retain a role for itself. This applied even to inferior officers appointed by the default advice and consent method. Congress could, of course, vest the appointment of such inferior officers in the principal officers, right, and could limit the ability of the principal officer to remove the inferior officer. But until Congress does so, the president's discretion, removal discretion, is unhampered, so said Chief Justice Taft. Uh, by the way, an aside, note that Taft never actually said that if Congress does vest the appointment of an inferior officer and a principal officer, Taft never said that that means the president couldn't remove the officer at the president's discretion, right? The, the prior cases had only said the principal officer could be restricted in the ability to remove, but, but uh, let's put that aside. Okay, then we get to 1935, and here is where the key precedent is. This is the Humphreys executor uh, decision. This was a functionalist decision upholding four cause removal provisions for FTC commissioners. The court reasoned that the FTC wasn't exercising executive power, nor was it exercising legislative power, nor judicial power. Instead, it was exercising quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial power. The reach of Myers, the court said in Humphreys, extends only to officers exercising purely executive power. Well, what exactly is quasi-legislative power? As the Supreme Court explained recently, I think in 2013, uh, in the city of Arlington, um, executive power sometimes takes legislative or adjudicatory forms, right? Like a regulation uh, or an administrative adjudication, but that doesn't make it legislative or judicial power. It's still executive power. Uh, and as I've argued in numerous of, of my own writings, uh, I believe there is such a thing as non-exclusive power, meaning power that can be exercised by more than one branch. For example, many regulations can be done by the executive or by Congress, right? So, so it's, it's, it's not exclusive. But the concept of quasi-legislative power is this idea that there's a category of power that needs to be exercised neither by Congress, nor the executive, nor the courts, but rather can be exercised by some other officer not controllable by any of the constitutional actors named in the Constitution. So this is, this is a new category of power altogether. And there's no room for that power in the Constitution. Uh, at least the Constitution you know, does not seem to contemplate uh, that power uh, at all. So in my view, Humphrey's executor seems clearly wrong on its reasoning. Now, there could be a way, this is important, there could be a way to support the result in Humphrey's executor. If the executive power clause, right, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States, if the executive power clause is not a grant of power, and therefore the only power the president has to execute law is that which is necessary to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, then I suppose it's a functionalist question. It's a functionalist analysis whether removal restrictions are or not consistent with this take care duty. Uh, after all, surely the president could remove for faithless execution, even if there's a four cause removal provision, right? Saying only remove for inefficiency and neglect of duty uh, and so on. But the president wouldn't be able to remove an officer for mere policy disagreements, right? So long as the agency is acting within the bounds of the statute. If the agency is acting within the bounds of the statute, then you know, it's still faithful execution, even if the president would have done it uh, differently. Okay, 
Well, I promise I'm almost getting to see law. Fast forward again to 1988, and the Supreme Court in Morrison v. Olson upheld the independent counsel statute. Uh, the independent counsel was exercising executive power. The court admitted that, but it was nevertheless okay to insulate the independent counsel from removal because doing so did not impermissibly interfere, that's the court's language, impermissibly interfere with the president's ability to execute the laws. So we have a different kind of functionalism in Morrison v. Olson. Quasi powers are out, or at least they don't always matter. And the president's control over even executive officers can be limited. Well, that was the functionalist era between 1930 and, and I guess the mid 2000s or so. Then the court, the Roberts court, uh, the early Roberts court, I guess, uh, started a return to formalism with a case called Free Enterprise Fund in, 20, in 2010, uh, where it said, the court said that two layers of four cause removal protections is too much. In other words, in Humphrey's executor, remember Congress could insulate principal officers, the FTC commissioners, uh, from uh, removal by the president. They, they could protect the commissioners uh, by four cause removal provisions. And earlier cases, in a case called Perkins principally, but some other cases, uh, uh, the court had said Congress can also insulate an inferior officer from at-will removal at the, by the principal officer. What the court in Free Enterprise Fund says is you can't combine them, right? If an inferior officer is protected by four-cause removal protections against the principal and the principal is protected by four-cause against the president, that's a new situation. You can't combine the two because that interferes too much with the president's executive power. So Free Enterprise Fund reflected the approach of the Roberts courts to not overturn uh, prior functionalist precedents, but also to extend them to new situations. Well, is the CFPB a new situation? The difference is that it was a single director independent agency that is a single principal officer protected by four cause removal protections. Now, some of you might be saying, well, wasn't the independent, independent counsel principal officer? Well, well, maybe, but the court said she was inferior, so put that aside. So the CFPB still represented something new. So what did the court do? It kind of did the free enterprise fund approach. It said this is a new situation. The rule of Humphrey's executor allowing four cause removal provisions only applies, the court said, to multi-member bipartisan boards that can check and balance each other. Of course, the dissent correctly noted that Humphrey's executor had actually little to do with that. It had to do with the nature of the power being exercised. But that doesn't give me heartburn. Uh, after all, Humphreys can be supported on the original meaning, if at all, if the president's only power is what can be implied from the take care clause. And again, that's a functionalist analysis. So what's wrong with a functionalist rule? It says it's not too much interference with the president's duty if you have a multi-member bipartisan commission that can be neutral and expert. A single director of a single political party will be neither neutral uh, or, ex or, or expert. Okay, so to wrap up, what does the future hold? What does the future hold? Will the Supreme Court keep the old precedent, but refuse to extend them to new factual circumstances. While it's not clear, it now appears that all nine justices on the Supreme Court agree that there's no such thing as quasi-legislative power. Thomas and Gorsuch said it explicitly in their CELA law concurrence, the court earlier in City of Arlington had said it, and all the dissenters in CELA law in a footnote agreed that it's all executive power. So nothing is left of Humphrey's reasoning. As for Morrison v. Olson, that was cited not for the functionalist test, but for the formalist proposition that principal officers can be restricted in their ability to remove the inferior officers. So in a future case, will the Supreme Court overturn Humphrey's executor? Certainly, I think it will be open to such a challenge. And the question then is, should the court overturn Humphrey's? What should the court do with Humphrey's? And the short answer, and I'll end on this, is it depends on the court's view of executive power. As I noted, 
Humphrey's executor can be supported on originalist grounds if the president's only law execution power is what can be implied from the duty to take care of. Then it's just a functionalist analysis. But if the executive power is a grant of power, at a minimum, a grant of law execution power, then it seems that law execution belongs to the president, whether the officer's principal or inferior. And then Humphreys, I think, has to be overturned. So what is the meaning of the executive power? I'll just flag that in a recent paper for the Duke Law Journal called In Search of Prerogative, and I summarize this briefly in my paper for Cato in this conference, I argue that the executive power is a substantive grant of power. Now, that's not particularly novel. Foremost have been saying it's a grant of power all along, a residual grant of all executive powers assigned else, not assigned elsewhere in the Constitution. Well, in my paper, I argued that the executive power was a grant of power, but it wasn't a residual grant. It was only a grant of law execution power. But even under this narrower, narrower grant, the president has the authority to remove officers who assist in executing the law. Any law execution discretion is the president's to exercise. A residual reading of the clause just isn't necessary for the argument, and it also happens to be historically wrong. But for, but for that argument, I'll leave it up to you whether you want to read that uh, other paper, and I'll leave things there. Um, thanks very much. Thank you, Elon. Uh, just so everyone knows, we will be we are taking questions. We will be doing those after, so you can do this on Twitter, hashtag Cato Scotus, uh, Facebook, and you can also write them into the Q and A. Uh, now I will turn it over to Peter Margulies to discuss the DACA cases. Peter, thanks, Trevor. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. So I hope this has been enabled for participants and. What I'm going to do is uh, start out with the discussion of what constituted the DACA program. Uh, and DACA was uh, a program of the Obama administration that reacted to the inability of Congress or the unwillingness of Congress to help the so-called dreamers, that is, folks who came to this country as kids from other countries basically knew no other home but the United States. After Congress passed or failed to pass the DREAM Act, Obama acted in 2012 through his Secretary of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano. DACA uh, gave benefits to people who arrived here as kids, and DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And those, those benefits came in really in two buckets. One was you got a reprieve from removal. You wouldn't have to leave this country. And two, you got work authorization. Both very important benefits. Now that's a bit of a tension as Justice Thomas mentioned in his dissent in the Regents case, a bit of a tension with the structure of the Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA, because the INA generally specifies narrow classes of people who can receive visas as immigrants. And basically those visas involve family ties to US citizens or lawful residents or various kinds of skilled employment. That's pretty much about it. Other foreign nationals who are here who don't have that kind of status based on family or employment are largely subject to removal, to deportation, unless they get what we call temporary deferred action, but that's also very rarely granted. It's granted as kind of a bridge to lawful status for people, let's say, who've applied for a family-based visa or an employment-based visa and are waiting to get it, having filed a good faith substantive application. And it's also given just to a, 
a small group of people with real hardships, uh, the people of extreme age, for example. So I had a client who was 80 and suffering from Alzheimer's and, and DHS said, we're not gonna force you to go back to your country of origin, that would be inhumane. So that's the limited hardship grant that's also part of deferred action. But DACA went well beyond that. It was a pretty big program, 700,000 people. So that's the tension with the Immigration Nationality Act scheme that Justice Thomas mentioned. DACA uh, actually, although it was big, was not anywhere near as big as the biggest uh, President Obama initiative, uh, which is deferred action for parents of Americans. That's the DAPA program, which were given deferred action, reprieve from removal, employment authorization to the parents of birthright citizens, people came here without a status. Uh, that program was enjoined by the courts, never got off the ground. President Trump then, when he arrived in office, uh, decided fairly early on, and part through um, colloquy with Texas and other states that opposed DACA, that he would rescind DACA as well, and acting Department of Homeland Security Secretary Elaine Duke, in fact, did that in September of 2017, based in part on a letter from Attorney General Sessions that said DACA was illegal, just like DAPA was. This program was enjoined by the courts during the Obama administration. But there was little reasoning supporting Sessions' conclusion or Duke's memo, and that came to haunt the administration. In DHS versus Regents of the University of California, where ironically Janet Napolitano had started the program as DHS Secretary under Obama, was now Chancellor, the court, in opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, found that DACA recipients had reliance interests. In other words, they had programs like uh, being in school, uh, receiving medical treatment, being in the armed forces, that uh, they had bought into that required some time to run their course. Uh, and so they would be damaged, they'd be harmed if these programs were cut short. And indeed, Chief Justice Roberts said that U.S. citizens and various U.S. entities like schools, employers, and the U.S. military would have uh, undergone what economists call negative externalities, that is, harms that uh, they suffer uh, not the parties to a case, if they had to end ties with DACA recipients, when they put in money and resources, time and effort into educating people, providing medical care, uh, training people in the armed forces, et cetera. So those reliance interests and negative externalities for Roberts triggered under the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, uh, a requirement that the administration engage in what Roberts called reasoned decision-making time-honored doctrine of administrative law before it could rescind the program. And for example, uh, Robert said, you could have considered separating out the reprieve from removal and the work authorization pieces of DACA, maybe ending the work authorization, because that posed the greatest tension with the Immigration Act statutory scheme, but continuing with the reprieve from removal, which is more of a garden variety exercise of prosecutorial discretion. Uh, the rationale is more fully explored in my article for the Cato Supreme Court Review, which is now on SSRN and shortly in print in the review. Uh, and to me, this is really, a, although it's a statutory case based on the Administrative Procedure Act, 
in many ways, it does hark back to the framers. It involves a duty to deliberate. It doesn't involve a duty to reach a particular outcome. And that's quite important uh, because Robert said, if the deliberation had been adequate, had been comprehensive, had been diligent, then the agency could have done what it wanted. It could have rescinded DACA, but it's the deliberation that was lacking. Of course, that's very much like the kind of process that the framers talked about. For example, Hamilton in Federalist 78, of course, talked about judgment as the virtue of the courts and the need to have a more far-sighted approach as opposed to being hung up on short-sighted humors, as he called it, of the political process. And here, though, the agency did not deliberate. And Robert says that uh, deliberation was the agency's job and its responsibility. Uh, that was the kind of deliberation the framers would have expected. That was not the deliberation that DHS exercised here. Thanks. Thank you very much, Peter. <clears throat> um, we have so said we can, we're opening it up for questions. You can ask that in the Zoom here. Uh, you can also ask it on Twitter, uh, which I will be trying to keep an eye on, but also my associate Sam Spiegelman will be keeping an eye on, uh, and also on the Facebook feed. I'd like to start <clears throat> with first to ask if any of the panelists um, have any commentary on the other cases uh, that you didn't cover on this panel, if anyone has anything to say on that. I, can you hear me? I Yes. Uh, I have actually some questions from for both uh, Peter and Jonathan. I'll start with Peter since I guess it's more legal. Um, on the DACA decision, I'm always I was sort of puzzled by this. If you know DACA was acknowledged to be a discretionary program, so the executive, there's no question, doesn't have to do it, right? So so at best discretionary, and at worst it's illegal, which I think was the the Trump administration's view. I understand, understand, I mean, I teach administrative law, I get to State Farm on Monday, and I understand under State Farm and Fox Television and Arbitrary and Capricious Review, generally the administration has to consider reliance interests of a previous rule before rescinding that rule. But why should it be the case that the agency or the executive ever has to consider reliance interests of an unlawful program if it believes it's unlawful? Why, you know, is it just a matter of showing its work and saying, we get those reliance interests, but we don't care because it's unlawful. And so we're gonna, we're gonna overturn it. Like why, why wouldn't that have been, and why wouldn't that have been enough? Uh, and I mean, I think that's what their view was. Um, and then, well, I, I guess it's similar to the question, question, I'll stop there. It's similar to the question here in the chat from David Frost. Once the agency concludes that the original administrative action was unlawful, why should deliberation be required? That's a similar question. That's a great question, and it was a question asked in a very acute way by Justice Thomas in his dissent. Uh, and frankly, I think this is a close case, particularly because of that very issue. But having said that, uh, I do ultimately think that Chief Justice Roberts got it right when he said that there's not a lot of precedent for setting up a program that helped this many people and that triggered the kind of reliance interests that were at stake here, people being in school. So for example, which is a very quick uh, anecdote, if you were starting in school in 2016-17, and you'd be a sophomore in 2018 and your DACA status expired on, let's say, March 6, 2018, you'd have to leave school 
right, right in the middle. And Robert said, you know, that's just not right, at least not without some consideration of the cost to that person and to that person's home institution. Uh, and so one way of looking at it is that it's really about American interests, both entities like schools and the teachers in the schools, uh, officers in the armed forces, everyone else who uh, established reliance interests and ties to these folks. And community ties have always been important in immigration. Uh, you could also argue that this is really a question of remedy, that even if you believe DACA was illegal, the administration still had discretion in how to wind it down. Right? A court, if it finds a practice to be illegal, doesn't have to stop it immediately. In entering injunction, the court has discretion to tailor that injunction to the various equities of the case, including reliance interests. And so I think one would think that Chief Justice Roberts is really saying, and quite put it this way, is that DHS could have exercised greater remo remo uh, remedial discretion or could have explained why it chose not to do so. Right? Secretary did not do that in September 2017. Arguably, then Acting Secretary Nielsen did more of that in June 2018. But because of another administrative law doctrine, the Chanery Doctrine, Roberts basically sliced off Nielsen's rationale said, the court can't consider this, that's impermissible post hoc rationalization. The agency only gets one bite at the apple, that's Duke's explanation in September 2017. And that again was a very stark, conclusory explanation that for Roberts did not suffice. Jonathan, did you have something you wanted to add? You're up. Nope. Um, the question, if I, do, if, if I could, sorry, I was having trouble unmuting myself. Yeah, I, I have a similar question, but I would put it a little bit more more pointed or, or I'll raise my concern in a more, more pointed way, which is uh, the majority goes out of its way to never say whether DACA was legal or illegal. So the underlying lawfulness of DACA is not relevant to its termination. I think an inescapable conclusion of that is, is that under Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, an agency could have the obligation to continue violating the law, to continue exercising powers that it does not have or that it is not exercising lawfully, unless and until that agency is willing to uh, engage in some sort of broader discussion of purported reliance interests. And, and I think that's, even though I actually think that DACA was, was quite possibly law, legal in the first instance, and, and Peter and I may disagree on that. Um, if it is un, illegal, I think it's hugely problematic that doctrine says you must continue to engage in illegal conduct. And if you think about this going forward, if, let's say uh, uh, Joe Biden wins the presidential election year, uh, or election this year, uh, there are all sorts of actions the Trump administration is taking in the regulatory context that are potentially unlawful. Um, it's waters of the United States definition. Uh, well, people are getting jurisdictional determinations that are supposed to last for five years under that rule. The Biden administration would not be able to simply rescind those on the basis that they were unlawful. Um, permit uh, uh, applications uh, for various projects. Uh, the new NEPA regulations that just went into effect this year. There's a whole wide range of things that under Chief Justice Roberts's opinion would have to be allowed and continue to be allowed even if they are unlawful. And, and I think that's, you know, as someone who likes DACA as a policy matter, who thinks it was lawful, 
I'm nonetheless very troubled by that implicate potential implication of the Chief Justice's opinion. Just a quick response. Secretary Nielsen's explanation for the rescission of DACA in June 2018 didn't really involve a lot of heavy lifting. That was a two and a quarter page memorandum that a skilled lawyer could have written in basically a couple of hours. Right? That was all that was required here. So it, it's not a lot. And, and Chief Justice Roberts was at pains to say, you don't have to continue the program. You just need an adequate rationale for rescinding it. Uh, so if DHS had done in September 2017 what Nielsen did in June 2018, probably given the general tenor of Roberts's analysis, they would have been fine. Uh, and so that raised the question, why didn't they do that? That, that should have been sort of due care. The you know, uh, Constitution Article 2 does talk about the obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And Robert says that's in fact a responsibility of government. It's not unreasonable to impose a responsibility to come up with a two and a quarter page memorandum. I have a question for Elon. Um, a good friend of mine, a former Cato Director of Financial Regulation, Mark Calabria, uh, is now the Federal Housing Finance Administration Director. Um, is he not long for this world in that position? Um. I may be conflicted out of answering this question, actually, <laughs> actually uh, because, and I actually am serious about that, and I'll have to think about that for a second. Um, so I guess what I will say is, it's if the FHFA is exercising executive power, then he's not long for this world. Maybe there's an argument it isn't, and uh, you know I'm not sure the strength of, of that argument. You know, just supervising Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I mean, there there are other problems they do initiate civil actions and enforcement actions against private private parties and banks. So, so I don't know. So, so he may or may not be long for this world. Uh, I certainly would be looking for a backup job uh, just in case uh, that, that never hurts. Um, can I, I, I know, I know we're running out of time. Oh, we have 15 minutes. So you could, please. Because this is an administrative law panel, basically. Um, I do have one other question then for Peter. You seem to recognize that Secretary Nielsen's June 2018 memo was much more detailed and in fact it did consider reliance interests. Uh, the Chenery 1 decision that you alluded to indeed says, you know, an administrative decision has to be judged on the basis of the reasoning and the time, right, uh, and what's before it. But why wasn't the decision under review Secretary Nielsen's decision? Why wasn't that the rule under review? After all, the APA defines a rule as any statement of general or particular applicability and future effect designed to implement or prescribe law or policy. Why was it Nielsen's statement in June 2018, the rule under review, instead of the earlier one from 2017 that was cursory? Now, I understand Secretary Nielsen said, I declined to disturb the earlier decision, and then for all these reasons. But it, are you saying if she had said, I rescind the decision, and I now reimpose a rule, create a new rule, that new rule is identical to the rule she rescinded. Would that then have been the rule under review? I mean, is that is that a for even I'm pretty formalist that even I wouldn't go by that distinction, right? So, so why wasn't hers the ruling under review? A much more recent decision of hers. Elon, that's also a wonderful question. So uh, Justice Kavanaugh addressed that in his dissent. And he argued that Chenery is actually a, a narrower doctrine than 
Chief Justice Roberts outlined, that it, it is basically designed to guard against agency lawyers concocting a rationale in the middle of litigation just to come up with something that's going to satisfy the courts. And he said, Nielsen was not an agency lawyer. She's a principal in the agency. She's the acting secretary, for God's sake. And so what she says really isn't covered by Chenery at all. That too, like Thomas's dissent on the substance of DACA, is in many ways a powerful kind of argument. Uh, and again, what helps make this a very close case in my view. But I would say, nevertheless, that the agency had an opportunity to do exactly what it did with Nielsen much earlier with Duke in September of 2017. It just would have involved a bit more nuance. Again, two and a quarter pages worth. Instead of being uh, just uh, consenting to what A.G. Sessions had said, Jeff Sessions has said, which is that DACA is not merely illegal, but is unconstitutional. And that's far less clear. That wasn't raised in any of the litigation on DAPA. And so it's not even clear where Sessions got that argument that DACA is unconstitutional. That to me was just not really diligent or well-informed lawyering on Attorney General Sessions's part. And Duke then, I think, fell victim to the same problem when she had her, you know, one paragraph conclusory view of DACA's legality. So again, it wouldn't have required a lot to satisfy Roberts on that point either. And so that leaves me at least scratching my head saying, you know, why was this administration so unwilling to at least take a couple of hours to deliberate about this? when the stakes were so high for both the DACA recipients themselves and all the folks who they interacted with, both entities and U.S. persons. A uh, question here from Pat and Jim. Uh, don't courts recognize reliance only if it's reasonable reliance? And if so, wasn't reliance unreasonable in the DACA case because its constitutionality was challenged from day one and the companion DAPA program was enjoined by the courts? Well, that's a fair question as well. Uh, and I guess the best answer is that DHS could have said from Jump Street, as Nielsen said in June of 2018, that there may be re a reliance interest here, but they are not reasonable, right? Uh, and Roberts apparently would have been okay with that. But the difficulty with Duke's memo in September 2017 is that it says virtually nothing uh, and, and it also left people high and dry. You know, that college person I mentioned who had to leave school on March 6, 2018, because the DACA wouldn't have been renewed at that point. It left them high and dry without explaining that this was necessary for enforcement of the law, uh, that it was best to have Congress make these kinds of decisions about who get this precious good of work permits right? Uh, again, it wouldn't have been tough to do that in September of 2017. Why all the hurry, right? Uh, and so that, I think, is really, again, a value that the framers emphasized that Hamilton was all about, being careful. That's why he, he praised judicial review, uh, and Marshall and Marvin versus Madison had very much the same thought, that 
we need that second look from the courts because otherwise the political branches will act precipitously. Precipitous action, un unfortunately, across the board has been what this administration is about. Another example is the census case saying that we, we're gonna ask the citizenship question. Uh, of course, I think those two cases where Robert said in the Department of Commerce case in 2019 that uh, the, the census argument made by the Department of Commerce was protectual. Department of Commerce said this about the Voting Rights Act. Robert said that just doesn't hang together as a rationale. And so part of the problem for both the census case and the DACA case is the administration was not able to come up with anything like a cohesive rationale for what it's doing. And I do think that's a minimum requirement of rationality. Otherwise, you could say, you know, maybe the administration could have said, we just feel like rescinding it, right? And maybe that would have been okay too but it's making a substantive, coming up with a substantive reason like this is unlawful without backing it up. That's the problem because what that suggests is that you wanna have your cake and eat it too. You don't wanna say, we just feel like doing it. You wanna cloak it in some rationale, but then you don't wanna fully explain that rationale or deal with the consequences. Does anyone have any thoughts on, the question coming up here, but, um, uh, here's one from Francis Brickfield uh, for Elon. Uh, in the CFPB case, what role did the funding mechanism play in the decision? That's an interesting question. It's one of those classic uh, judicial maneuvers where they say, well, for this additional reason, we are particularly concerned, but we're not sure if it's not clear that uh, the decision was about the other way or that it, this is actually central to the decision. So uh, the it was a throwaway line where uh, the chief justice says, you know, and, and in this case, we are particularly concerned that the funding might, it's basically self-funding through fees and things like that. So there's no congressional oversight either through the appropriations process. And then there was one other thing that, that concerning about this particular structure, but they were throwaway lines. And I wouldn't, you know, bank on that being the distinction between FHFA and the CFPB um, because it really wasn't ultimately determinative of, of the outcome. It, it makes it all the worse, right? The, the structure of the CFPB, um, it makes it all the more insulated, but it, but it really wasn't determinative of the outcome, I don't think, but they, they did say that. Does anyone have any thoughts on the, the, one of the unifying things about all the cases discussed on this panel is that all were decided by Chief Justice Roberts. Now, it might be for different reasons. Um, and also the census case, as Peter brought up, which does seem like it's a kissing cousin to the DACA case. Um, is there a significance to Roberts writing these, these opinions? I would say there is. I mean, I, I think Roberts is at heart an institutionalist. He cares deeply about the court's legitimacy and credibility. And I think he came to feel, starting with the census case and then going on to DACA this term, that this administration really didn't care that much about the legitimacy of American institutions of governance. And so I, I think Roberts was really pushing back. I would say that, that these cases uh, certainly reflect um, Chief Justice Roberts's general approach to, to questions. It's not simply, um, I think pushing back against administrative irregularity. Uh, I think he cares about separation of powers. I think he cares about uh, those questions. I think he also um, you know, has a, what I've characterized as a conservative minimalism that is, that is observable in all of these cases. That is to say, he uh, wants to reaffirm his 
fairly formalist understanding of separation of powers, but wants the ultimate judgments that the court issues to be fairly non-disruptive and status quo oriented. So in the CFPB case, he reaffirms the underlying formalist principles, but is unwilling to carry those principles to their, to their logical conclusion and overturn prior precedents. And uh, through severability, issues a judgment that really doesn't change much uh, on the ground. Um, in the DACA case, he uh, wants an outcome that is, that is very status quo oriented, respecting the reliance interests, even at the possible expense of the underlying separation of powers principles he cares about. And I think in both uh, Vance and Mazars, uh, those cases in many respects reaffirmed his understanding of what the status quo was or should have been. Uh, the longstanding uh, uh, principle that the president is not a monarch, is not uh, fundamentally immune, uh, certainly not for things that were done outside of, outside of office. And I think the Mazars decision uh, really was trying to replicate in a court, court judgment uh, the sort of outcome that you see when Congress uh, proceeds directly uh, to the White House or directly against the executive in, in seeking documents uh, rather than going through court. And I think those all reflect this kind of status quo, uh, anti-disruption impulse that the Chief Justice has exhibited. Our friend Joseph Bishop Hinchman has a question for Elon uh, that a good libertarian should be is uncomfortable with the administrative state precisely because it's a hybrid fourth branch. Uh, Congress and the president have together decided to delegate their power to such entities imbued with expertise. Humphrey's executors seem to acknowledge this political compromise, but should these agencies be recast as purely executive agencies? And is that what the CFPB case does? Uh, so... I mean, there are a couple of things we can we can say about this. So actually, the question took a different turn at the end. I thought, you know, uh, or, or maybe this is what you're getting at, that that maybe Humphrey's executor is a good sort of second best situation where if we're going to be, I, I guess this is your question, if they're delegating all this power to the executive, do we actually want an accumulation of power in the executive? Um, um, uh, Ilya Soman, not Ilya Shapiro, uh, for this reason argues uh, that uh, he's a George Mason uh, argues that um, Humphrey's executor or these independent, you know, uh, agencies are actually sort of this constitutional second best uh, mechanism. Uh, so, so it's sort of a theory of the constitutional second best. If delegation of power is inevitable, delegation of legislative power to executive agencies is inevitable, and that's unconstitutional. Well, we may as well do a sort of a second unconstitutional move to rejigger things a bit, to rebalance things a bit. Um, there's a famous article uh, arguing for a legislative veto uh, on this reason. Yes, the legislative veto is unconstitutional, but so is this delegation of legislative power. Let's just stop pretending it's not legislative power. Let's, uh, let's call it legislative power, but give Congress a back-end veto. And wouldn't that uh, be better for checking, checking and balancing? And the, and the short answer, I think, is, is, is yes. Uh, you know, that, that certainly is plausible. But again, to be clear, the world isn't going to fall apart. It's not like by by getting rid of these four cause removal provisions, the president all of a sudden is going to have so much more power than 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 she or she previously had. I mean, there's a huge political cost right to removing uh, an agency head, and then the agencies themselves, to the extent they're still independent commissions, still have you know the the bipartisan composition. So if the president removes them. Uh, you know, the president would still have to appoint someone uh, 
so that there's still that that you know majority plus one of one political party, unless the appointment mechanism, unless that's unconstitutional for some reason. But but I'm not convinced that it's unconstitutional for Congress to set conditions of appointment. Um, so you know the president's power would still be limited. I mean it's not a huge a huge uh, transfer of power to the to the president if removal restrictions were struck down. Uh, but it would give one more political check against abusive agencies, and I think that would be a good thing. One of the questions that struck me during the during the run up to the Sale of Law case was, I wonder, in Elizabeth Warren, when she was still in the running for the de possible Democratic presidential nomination, so I wonder what she thought about that, because she wanted to set it up as an independent agency, but if she won the presidency, she would want to fire the person immediately who was running it so she could make it, you know, so I, you know, did she weigh in on the structure of this, but then suddenly had a personal interest in being able to fire the guy. And I, I didn't ever see anything, anyone weigh in on that, but I, it, it struck me as an interesting concern. That is interesting and reminds me of the other factor that they mentioned, other than the appoint, appoint, uh, appropriations being self-sufficient. Uh, they also said, because the term was five years, that means a president might never get to a point uh, a director of his or her choice, and that added added to the problem. But again, that's sort of overdetermined. Um, but I, I would I would love to see what what uh, Senator Warren has said about that. Well, we are right here at the time, um, and uh, would use this the time where I would usually say join me in thanking our panel to our to our audience so you can clap it in your home uh for everyone participated thank you peter and jonathan and elon uh we will have an hour break for lunch and then we'll be back here at one for the panel on criminal law and accountability so thank you everybody <laughs>